It, it takes us right into the very life of this Jesus Christ that we worship. It, when we start studying the book of Matthew, also keep in mind that what we are looking at is the central most critical period of history. When we talk about the life of Jesus Christ, the life that he lived, we're talking about a life that changes eternity. All of time revolves around this man, Jesus Christ. If you listen to Pastor Dusty this past Sunday, looking at Colossians 11, the last half of that verse, and he said so many important things. I wish we could go over everything he talked about, just where the Bible repeatedly points us to the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ, to the superiority of who he is. But just the very verse that Pastor Dusty taught on this past Sunday, the second half of Colossians 3.11, where it says, Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. The point that Paul is making in that very verse, Colossians 3.11, is that Jesus defines everything. Everything revolves around this one man. In fact, think about the specific context of Colossians 3.11 that Pastor Dusty's been taking us through. And the emphasis has been, the point that Paul has been making is that as people, as humans, we tend to hang our worth on so many things of this world. Whether it is our ethnicity, our political party, our social status, our economic status, our athletic ability, our intellect, our talents. In this world, as people, we hang our value on so many of these things. And the point that Paul is making when he says in Colossians 3.11 that Christ is all, Christ is everything, is that who we are in him just completely blows all that other stuff away. It's not that they're completely irrelevant or that they have no place in our lives, but they are nothing compared to who we are in Jesus Christ. And and so why is Matthew so exciting? Well, because what we get to study when we look at Matthew is the reality that Jesus is not like what you find in so many other religions. Uh, Think about just even Greek mythology, Zeus, Hermes, Ares, these these deities or these gods that were mythical. They were just ideas. Or even in this world, so many people find hope in philosophies or concepts or um, just even some idea of an inanimate cosmic force. But this Jesus Christ, who is 100% God, when we dive into Matthew, what we find is that this Jesus Christ, who is 100% God, is also 100% human. He's not some cosmic force. He's not merely some idea or philosophy. But he is a real man who walked this earth just like you and I and forever altered history. History past history present, history for eternity in the future, all altered by the life that we study when we look at the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is going to give us a historical account of this Jesus Christ on this earth. 
Tonight, we're going to look at chapter 1. And when you look at the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four of them were written for different people from different perspectives and with a different emphasis. And they don't contradict each other. They never go against each other. They all communicate the same gospel message about the same Jesus Christ, but they have a different emphasis that they're making. So, for example, Mark. Mark wrote on behalf of Peter. So people will always tell you that one of the um, criteria for being included in the Bible as a New Testament letter was it had to be tied to an apostle. Well, Mark wasn't an apostle, but he wrote, most people think from Rome, him and Peter, Peter was an apostle, and they were in Rome together, and Mark kind of recorded Peter's memoir of his time with Christ, right? And so Mark, really focuses on showing the servant's heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a servant. Luke, Luke again, not an apostle, but he wrote under Paul. Paul, he traveled with Paul. When you study through Acts, you, you see that he traveled with Paul. And Peter, or I'm sorry, Luke really took almost more of a historian scholarship type approach in compiling the records and, and the reports of G, who Jesus Christ is and what he did. And under the guidance of Paul, he compiled his gospel, really showing the humanity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the son of man, that if you go back and look at Daniel, Daniel talks about how he saw a, a vision as the Son of Man is, is somebody who looked fully human, like completely human, but was given everlasting dominion and power by God the Father. Luke records for us that Jesus is that Son of Man. John, John focused on compiling the miraculous spiritual nature of what Jesus Christ did, the many miracles. And he tells us in John 20, verse 31, that the reason he records all these miracles is so that we can see those things and believe and know that Jesus is the Son of God. So what does Matthew focus on? What does Matthew focus on? Matthew, he was one of the apostles. He was a tax collector. You go look at Luke 5, Jesus comes across Matthew in a tax booth, which really automatically makes this a somewhat unique and surprising story, right? Because was the Jewish relationship with tax collectors a typically good one? No, typically not. These were uh, people who worked for the Roman government and who you, obviously you don't like Rome if you're a Jew because they're foreign occupiers of your land. They're oppressors of your people. Yet these tax collectors were Jewish men who had really become, in a sense, traitors to your culture because they're working for the Roman government, your oppressors, to take money from you to give to them. And the way they made money was by overcharging you so that they could give what was owed to the Roman government, but then keep any excess profit for themselves. And, and, and so when we look at Matthew as an apostle and the writer of this gospel— just from the very beginning, it's a very unlikely story. But the focus that Matthew hones in on, the theme of his Gospels, he wants to show us that Jesus is king. Jesus is the eternal 
king of God's people, the eternal ruler of God's kingdom. That as the Old Testament repeatedly points us towards the king of the Jews, the coming king of the Jews, the coming ruler of God's people, sustainer of God's people, Jesus Christ is the one who who fulfills that. And this is the theme throughout Matthew, but we are going to see it so clearly even in the very first chapter. Chapter 1 of Matthew shows immediately that Jesus, by lineage, rightly inherits the throne of King David. He rightly sits on King David's throne. Matthew 1 falls into two very distinct sections. Verses 1 through 17 gives us the Abrahamic Davidic lineages showing us the kingly descent of Christ from Abraham down to the birth of the Messiah. That'll be the first section we look at. The second part, verses 18 to 25, give us the historical account of the birth of Christ. Let's look now at part one, a king's lineage. Oh, it, I didn't want it all to pop up like that. I have to do better next time. But part one here, the, the king's lineage. We're going to read this. I, I mentioned last time uh, that when you're reading through the Bible and you get to ge- genealogies, it's real easy for your mind just to shut off, right? And for your mind to kind of go into autopilot, if, if you even do that. I mean, if we're being honest, a lot of times we just kind of skip, right? Like you're going through numbers and you're like, eh, I think we can page over a few over this list of names that I can't pronounce anyhow, right? But these are here for a reason. God gives us these uh, lineages to show us that we're not just looking at a list of names. If you treat the lineages of the Bible, if you treat Matthew 1 to 17 as just a list of names, and you might as well, well go read a phone book, right? Like that would be pretty boring. But this is interesting. First of all, it shows us the descent of Christ. That in and of itself is very interesting. But what this also shows us is God's sovereignty over human history. That God is in control of everything that happens, and he's working all these things throughout history to his eternal purposes of saving a people for himself. Life is not just a series of random events. It wasn't just a series of random events that led up to the birth of Christ. What this lineage shows us and what the Old Testament really shows us, what so much of it is about, is showing us God sovereignly guiding history to bring about the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for Asher, Asher McCullough. If he hears me say, hey, good luck, he'll correct me. No, there's no such thing as luck. He's done it, I think, at least twice where he's heard me say good luck. And Asher's like, Mr. Brandon, there's no such thing as luck. I'm grateful for that. He's right. God sovereignly controls these things and works them for his glorious purposes. So we're not just going to start reading verses 1 through 17 because that would be tough, right? Like we're going to do this as almost like a tour, almost a tour where we just read along through these names pointing out interesting things we find along the way. And there's really about 
four, as you can see, uh, four key observations I want to pull out of this list of names. Um, but we'll just kind of read as we go along. But the first observation, God is eternally faithful to his promises. God is eternally faithful to his promises. Starting in verse one, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Now, how, if you're going to look at this list of names, so as we go through, we're going to see some very familiar names for us. Some names we're like, oh yeah, I know exactly who that guy is. We're going to see names we don't have any clue about. But starting out, y'all heard these names before? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, familiar? All right, if you were going to make an argument for the faithfulness of God based off of those men, based off of these verses, what would you say? How did how do Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in verse 2 here, how did they testify to God's eternal faithfulness to his promises? Owen? Because the Messiah was supposed to come from Abraham. Yeah, where do you find that? That's like a bonus. That's hard. Like in Isaiah. Yeah, you you could probably make an argument for that. But Genesis, right? So like, Owen is exactly right. Owen is exactly right. Uh, When we come to the life of Christ, the birth of Christ, we're coming to the fulfillment of promises that God made to Abraham literally over 2,000 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus is really not just a moment in time fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. Jesus is the eternal fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. Um, You got to go back to Genesis chapter 12, early. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, where you find the Abrahamic covenant. And when, when the Abrahamic covenant takes place, when God enters into this relationship, he chooses Abraham and enters into this relationship with him and promises him the things we're going to look at here. Abraham was a 75-year-old man. He was not living in the promised land. He was living as a 75-year-old man um, in the, his, kind of with his people well east of where Israel is today. He had a, a barren elderly wife. He had no children, and there was really no prospect of children coming into his life at the age of 75. But God had a plan of redemption and he was going to carry it out through Abraham. So in verses 1 to 3 of Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your land that you've known for 75 years. And I want you to go to this, what we now know as Israel, the promised land. I want you to leave I want you to travel there. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he's the, probably to me, the most interesting promise God makes to Abraham is that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in you. You start to immediately see where Jesus, somebody like Jesus is necessary for the fulfillment of that kind of promise. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus. First of all, this great nation, this is God's eternal kingdom. 
Christ is the king. And we are all blessed. All the families of the world are blessed in Abraham's descendant, in Jesus Christ, because it's through him that we are reconciled to God and made a part of this eternal kingdom. Abraham becomes the greatest kingdom of all because um, all the earth is blessed in him. I mean, if you think about the nations of this world, they all come to an end, right? You name the greatest nations, the greatest cultures, the greatest civilizations throughout history, and they come to an end. But God's kingdom is eternal, and it comes through Jesus Christ. The second observation, and I think such an important one here, is sin cannot thwart God's plan. In verse 3, we see Judah fathered Perez by Zerah and Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Now, again, you got to go back to Genesis to understand the relationships, relationships here. But it, who's got problems in their family? Anybody got like crazy cousins, crazy uncles? We're not going to talk about immediate family because that's just a little close. Let's talk about like, you know, second cousins maybe. We all got crazy second cousins, right? It's just inevitable. Like we all got, but you would think if you were going to be writing the story of Jesus, Jesus is our holy God. Jesus is perfect righteousness, divine holiness made flesh. If you were writing the story or if I was writing the story, wouldn't you perhaps make the family tree leading up to the birth of the Savior of the world like sparkling clean? Wouldn't you make it really nice and pretty and put together? But no, as you go through this lineage, if you know um, the if you know the history behind these people, you know that these are deeply flawed and sinful people, just like all of us. Yet God still brings about his purposes. Time and time again, Satan steps into biblical history to try to throw God's redemptive plan off track, to try to um, cause problems, to cause issues. But sin cannot thwart God's plans. Um, Judah and Tamar here, they're brought into verse 3. Just one example of gross immorality, gross sinfulness back in Genesis, grievous sin. Yet God uses even those events to bring about the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, is God ever the source of sin? Like, did God want Judah, Tamar to have this gross sinfulness, immorality in their lives? Is God the source of sin? No. God's never the source of sin. God never causes anybody to sin. But can he still use sin? Absolutely. In his incredible wisdom, power, he even uses sin to bring about his purposes. Now, that, should that ever diminish how serious we take sin? No. That, it, it's completely the wrong attitude and leads to drastic consequences to say, oh, you know, sin doesn't really matter. God, God's gracious. He just forgives me. So I can go do whatever I want and he'll, he'll just forgive me. No, no, no. Look, you go through the examples. We'll see. And this isn't just the only one. I mean, David's going to come up. We know David's life. Uh, so many of these. We could go example after example. 
did God in his graciousness and his wisdom still bring about his good purposes through the sin? Yes. Were there still horrific human consequences because of their sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we say that, we don't want to minimize the sinfulness of sin or, or the seriousness of it. But it does remind us when we make a mistake, when we fall in this world, or when sin, when we don't make a mistake, but just sin impacts us from outside of our lives, it, God is powerful enough. It's not going to thwart, thwart his purposes for your life. It's not, his graciousness overcomes these things. The, the most prominent example is Jesus Christ, right? When Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross by Roman guards, sent there by the Jewish leaders, was that sinful hatred in their hearts that put Christ on the cross? Absolutely. But it was God bringing about his plan of salvation. When the, what this really reminds me of when I read through this list of names and we see the, the sin that is involved in so many of these lives, it just reminds me that God alone is holy. God alone is holy. Even the, the best men and women that we find in Scripture remind us that God alone is holy. And it's a great reminder for us and the lives that we interact with in this world Remember, when people disappoint you, they're people. God alone is holy. Don't be surprised, right? Um, um, God alone is holy. Observation three. God's, I didn't know how to word this one. I, I put it up here. God's salvation plan included Jews and Gentiles. You could alternatively say, same thing, but God's salvation plan includes all humanity. So Jews, Gentiles, essentially when you see that in the Bible, it means all humanity. And we see that as we read through the, this lineage leading up to Christ. Uh, Ram, verse 4, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, by Rahab. Now there's somebody interesting, right? Rahab, back from Judges 2. Two interesting things about her being included here. First of all, go back to the sinful thing, right? I mean, she was a harlot. That's what she was known for. But also now we have not just Jews, but we have Gentiles being introduced into the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Because for some much of history, a false way of thinking, particularly among the Jews, was that salvation is of the Jews. Like, this is a Jewish thing. You have to be Jewish. And there's no room for Gentiles in God's kingdom. But we see it here already being included. Uh, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is not there because it's just a great story. Like a lot of people think of Ruth as like, oh, I love Ruth. It's a love story in the Bible. Yeah, okay, it is that. But the reason it's there is two reasons, I would say. One, because it 
is part of the history that leads us up to the birth of Christ. But then also the huge uh, implication to Ruth is, again, Ruth is from Moab. Even a people group that was historically an enemy of the Jews, enemies of the people of Israel. Yet now we have a second Gentile being included in the bloodline of Christ. Ruth and Obed fathered Jesse. Um, now we get uh, something interesting here. Christ's kingship is eternal. We're going to see two very familiar names. Two very f- familiar names. Perhaps two of the most recognizable ones in the list. In verse 6, Jesse fathered David the king. David fathered Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. David, King David is the one that most of us are going to be familiar with. David and Goliath, uh, David and Bathsheba. David was probably the greatest king of all of Israel. He wrote many of the Psalms. I don't know how many, uh, half of them perhaps, but very many of the Psalms were written by David. And then Solomon, his son, in 2 Kings 3, Solomon takes over, and he's kind of intimidated. Okay, dad's died. David's died. I'm taking over. This is a big job. And God says, hey, Solomon, what do you want? Solomon says, give me wisdom. Help me know how to rule your people in a way that is wise and honoring you. And God answers that. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all comes through this Solomon we see here. And we're again reminded of um, gross immorality, extreme sinfulness, not thwarting God's plan. It's buried right in this verse 6 here. If you know Old Testament history, David fathered Solomon by, it says, the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. It was an adulterous relationship that led to the murder of Uriah. Yet here is where the lineage of Christ is king is established. It's established with David. Who was king before David? Saul. Okay. And then who was king before Saul? Ahaz. Nobody. They did, it was a trick question, kind of. <laughs> they didn't have a king, right? You go back to Judges, and why does it tell us over and over again, why does it say that Israel did not have a king? Because God was their king. God was their king. They didn't need one. God ruled over them. They, they, they didn't need a king. Yet when you get to 1 Samuel, they say, I want a king. We want a king. This isn't working for us. Why do they say they want a king? Does anybody remember like the specific... They wanted to be like all the other nations. That is a really dumb attitude that we so often take on, right? I mean, how often do we take that attitude on where we look around at what other people have? And we're not content with what God's given us. We want what other people have. That's exactly how Israel got into this mess with their kings. They looked around. They wanted to be like the other nations. God wasn't enough. Did that work out well for them, this king thing? 
No. I mean, they had a few bright spots with the Kings. Like, they had some occasional Kings that came along that were okay. But for the most part, it was a disaster. Most of the Kings were terrible. Yet, even within here, go ahead, Ian. That's why we have two books of Kings failing. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great point. Um, But even within that, there's a story of redemption, right? Because, okay, before judges, or during judges, before the kings, God was their king. God was their ruler. They want a human king. So, okay, God's like, whatever. Here's your your run of human kings. It's a complete disaster and failure. Yet, we circle back to Jesus Christ. Their eternal king, born through this line of kings, who is, once again, God, their king for eternity. Isn't that pretty amazing, right? Like that cycle there where uh, it's like sometimes God has to show us just how bad what we want is so that we can realize what we really want is him. It's really what you have here with uh, this kings. But um, uh, this is where... um, when we talk about Jesus Christ as king, he always has been. He always has been sovereign ruler and Lord. But here's where you pick up on this thread with the Davidic line of kings. Saul's the first one. He's terrible. But God quickly chooses in 1 Samuel 16, quickly chooses David, places David on the throne. And in 2 Samuel 7, 16, God says to David, and this is important for Jesus, God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. It's going to our fourth point here, right? Christ's kingship is eternal. Because how is David's kingdom established forever? I mentioned this a moment ago. Are there any eternal earthly kingdoms? The Babylonians, how are they doing today? They were big time. Like the Babylonians were big time. Nebuchadnezzar, he's huge. How's Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom doing today? Not that great, right? The Roman Empire, big time. How's the Roman Empire doing today? Not too good. The Mayan Empire. What about America? Is America eternal? Go ahead. No? It can feel that way, right? When you're in the middle of it, you always think you're eternal. Even Israel. Go ahead, Fox. It says um, in the line of Jesus' ancestors, why doesn't it have Noah? Why doesn't it have Noah? Because it picks up at Abraham. I don't know. Because <laughs> that's where God des- that's where he decided to start. That's a great question. Why does it not have Noah? I don't know. Matthew, when he was writing, he wanted to pick up where Abraham was, and Abraham's obviously after Noah. And so, but if you go look at Luke, I forget where in Luke, maybe like chapter two or three. Early on in Luke, it has a lineage that goes back to our genealogy that goes back to uh, Adam, actually. Um, And most likely, the difference there. Matthew, Matt, remember, Matthew's very focused on showing Jesus as king. That's, that's his focus here. Matthew is very focused on that king thing. And so he really goes through Joseph's line 
and follows that kingly genealogy showing that, hey, Jesus is born in this line of David. He is king of Israel. Whereas remember Luke, Luke's coming from more of uh, showing the humanity of Christ. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is the son of man. Um, and uh, goes with that different emphasis. He actually goes, it looks like, more through Mary's genealogy and goes all the way back to Abraham. So I think there's just a different difference of emphasis there. Um, but yeah, because of Matthew's focus, that's why I think he picks up at Abraham and not earlier. Um, but even Israel, right? Okay, so Israel didn't even exist from like 70 AD to 1949. I mean, that's like almost 2,000 years where Israel doesn't even exist as a nation. So the reason that God's kingdom is eternal is it's not of this world. There's going to come a time where God really just puts an end to this world. And he establishes, creates a new earth with new heavens where Jesus Christ reigns for eternity. Christ's kingship is eternal. And that's the only way that David's promise in 2 Samuel 7.16 gets fulfilled. The only way that David's kingdom endures forever and his throne is established forever is if we're no longer thinking strictly on earthly terms, on temporary terms, but we're thinking of God's eternal kingdom and Christ's eternal reign. Um, you'll see, we'll go a little bit quicker here through these next few verses, much quicker. Um, you'll still see some noteworthy names. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Again, a mix here of good and bad kings. Rehoboam was pretty foolish. The kingdom divided under him. Um, Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Now, Uzziah is interesting. Where, where do you recognize Uzziah from? That's a great question, and you could be right. I wouldn't disagree with you. You've got to kind of know a lot of Old Testament in depth to like really be good with these kings. I wouldn't know enough to say yes or no to that. What I think of with Uzziah is the call of Isaiah. Like in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah specifically says that it was in the year of the death of Uzziah that God called him to ministry. Um, he fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the pretty good kings there. Um, he's the one Sennacherib invades from Assyria. And I just really love the way Hezekiah responds. Hezekiah says, okay, Sennacherib's scary, but we're going to trust in the Lord. We're going to trust in the Lord, and God delivers him. Um, he fathers Manasseh, Manasseh fathers Ammon, Ammon fathers Josiah. Josiah is one of the greats, right? Like Josiah is the one who finds the book of the law that's kind of been ignored, gotten real dusty. And he's the one who dusts it off and says, hey, we're going back to this. We are going back to this. One of the great reformers. Josiah fathered Jeconiah, and that's where it really starts to fall apart. Jeconiah um, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. 
And this is, after that is where we get really obscure with these next ones. Uh, verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is kind of familiar, right? Because when Cyrus says, hey, you Jews, y'all can go back. Um, Zerubbabel is one of the first uh, leaders of the people back to Jerusalem after the deportation. But after this, I got no clue what's going on with most of these guys. Because uh, this is where you start to get to like intertestamental periods. I don't know. Uh, Zerubbabel fathered Abihud. Abihud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Joseph. Finally, a name I recognize. Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Verse 17 is kind of a summary. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14. And from the deportation to Babylon uh, uh, to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So hopefully you see when you read through that, it's not just a boring list of names. But you see God has just been guiding this plan of redemption to Fox's point since the beginning, right? Like, that's why if you go look at Luke, he goes all the way back to Adam and Eve because this is not just something that God decided to kick into gear with Abraham. That's just where Matthew happens to pick up. But you see this sovereign hand of God throughout the Old Testament. And this really makes the Old Testament come much more to life, right? Because you see what, what, what happened through these people. But that brings us to part two. And I'm sorry, we got to pick up a little bit of speed here. We're uh, a little bit behind where I'd want to be. Part two, the king's birth. The king's birth. Verses 18 to 19, Joseph's dilemma. Joseph's dilemma. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. To understand, planned to send her away secretly. Now, to understand Joseph's problem here, you have to under, understand what betrothal was. The closest that we're going to get to it in our culture is to be engaged to be engaged, but it was really very different. So if, if a guy and a girl get engaged now and then say like three months down the road, uh, one of them's unfaithful to the other one while they're in the middle of planning the wedding and everything, or one of them decides to break it off, is that a huge inconvenience? It is kind of, right? Like it's a big pain. You might got to return some wedding gifts. You got the embarrassment of telling everybody like, oh, hey, we broke it off. Like it's a hassle. But betrothal was like a whole step beyond that. When a betrothal, it was an engagement, but it was absolutely as legally binding as marriage. Had all the legal implications of marriage, all the family implications of marriage. So it was an engagement period, but like as serious of a thing as divorces and marriage, breaking off a betrothal was just as serious. So 
You got to understand that to understand the dilemma that Joseph is in when he finds out that Mary is pregnant. Because the only reasonable explanation, he knows they haven't been together. The only reasonable explanation is she's been unfaithful in this betrothal. And it's just as high of a level of guilt as adultery, as marital infidelity. And, and so Joseph finding out that Mary has been unfaithful here, in his mind, that's a huge deal. In, in the Old Testament, what was... Um, one of the penalties for adultery. Death. Death. Like Joseph was very much within his rights to make Mary's life miserable. To, To put her on public display, to shame her. He was very much, if she was unfaithful, within his rights to do that. But it tells us something about Joseph's character here in verse 19. In verse 19, it says that Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Notice it says in the beginning of verse 19, Joseph, her husband. So they're not married yet, but the betrothal was such a legally binding engagement that he would already be called her husband, but he's a righteous man. He doesn't want to make a public spectacle of her and plans to send her away privately, quietly. Plans to just divorce her quietly, go their separate ways. But God steps in in verse 20 here. God steps in and reveals the miraculous conception. It says in verse 20, but when he had thought this over, Behold, or but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. An angel appears to Joseph and gives him two major pieces of information. Number one is Mary has not been unfaithful. Unfaithful. His only reasonable explanation for her being pregnant was that she has been. The angel of the Lord steps in and says, no, the child that she is with, the Holy Spirit put it there. It's of the Holy Spirit. That's the first huge insight that we have here into who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. This is all part of God's plan of salvation, God's work of salvation. Jesus is God's Son, the very deity made flesh. A lot of people have a huge problem with the virgin birth of Christ, the miraculous conception of Christ. They have a huge problem with that. Most of the time, they just simply write off the idea. Miracles can't happen. This is impossible. So I don't believe it. Of course, it's not possible. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. And do you know why people have such a problem with miracles? Perhaps it is just an intellectual obstacle for them. Or perhaps it's that 
what are the implications of this? And go back to even creation. I always say this about creation, right? Like, we come up as humans, all these different ideas for how the earth got here and how we got here, other than God created it. Because the implications, if God created this, those implications are huge. It has huge implications on your life. Same thing with the miraculous conception of Christ. If Jesus really is the Son of God, and this is really how Jesus was born into this world, that has huge implications for your life. Ian. Yeah. It has a lot of implications. And if you love sin, it's got a lot of implications for the sin in your life, right? The second thing that the angel tells Joseph here, his name should be, shall be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is derived from the Hebrew word Yeshua, means to deliver, to rescue. Jesus came to meet the biggest need that we have. The biggest need that we have is to be reconciled with God. Do you realize that God is life? Jesus said, here's eternal life, that they know the Father. Knowing God, fellowship with God, reconciliation with him, that is life. That, that, that is our only good, our deepest need, and our sin creates an obstacle. Our sin separates us from God, makes us enemies of God. Yeshua, Jesus, the deliverer, the rescuer, came to save his people from their sins. We'll circle back to that in a, in a moment. But lastly here, prophecy fulfilled, verses 22 to 25. And really, this could almost go with chapter 2. Because what we're going to pick up on a lot as we go into chapter 2 is Matthew is building a case from the Old Testament showing that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. He's going to do this over and over again. This is just the first example of it where he, he shows us from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. And he, so verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And this is Isaiah seven fourteen. he's quoting. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You want to know who Jesus is? Matthew is putting it right out there for you. And it's exactly who Isaiah and the Old Testament said he would be. Jesus is God with us. The eternal creator of the universe as a baby. Your mind can't get around that. It's just more than we can comprehend that eternal God, creator, sustainer, 
of all this is a helpless baby. Emmanuel, God with us. That's who this baby is. 100% God, 100% human. A king is born. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Look, application here is pretty simple, right? If this is true, your life has to be changed. Your life has to be different. The Old Testament, thousands of years of Scripture points to this moment. God with us, the birth of the Messiah, and why he came is given to us right here. That he came to save his people from his sin. Did Jesus come for a purpose? For you to admit that Jesus came for a purpose, you have to start with admitting that you're a sinner. With admitting that you've got a sin problem. That this fellowship with God you were created to have, this fellowship with God, there's no life apart from him. Any earthly life is temporary, empty, fleeting. we got eternity to think about. And there's no life separated from the Father. Yet we all, each and every one of us, has this sin problem that Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, came to save us from. My question is, do you believe this? Do you believe what all the Old Testament prophets pointed to? to? Do you believe what this history of the Jewish people led us up to? Do you believe that this Jesus is the son of God. My challenge to you is to evaluate that in your own life. Have I come to a place where I recognize who Jesus Christ is? And Matthew's going to be amazing. We're going to jump in and we're going to see just so many miraculous things that Jesus does, so many incredible things that he teaches us. But it all starts with recognizing who he is. And as we go into chapter 2 next week, Matthew's going to continue to build this case over and over again. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that this all points to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you don't hide yourself. You don't play games with us. You don't cloak yourself. But you make it as plain as possible that... For any of us who would recognize our sin, repent from our sin, turn to you, that in you we would have life. In you we would be delivered from our sins. We would be saved from our sins. That's why you came. That was the eternal plan of the Father. That was the plan that all this Old Testament history led us up to. And I just pray that you would convict our hearts of that reality and that truth and that you'd help us to love you more and to live for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.